Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In the fall of 2009, I set off on a cross-country journey, me and my little black Honda Civic that I had named Gwen. For the first time that year, I was going to drive alone from my home in the foothills of the Ozark Mountains all the way to northern Illinois, where I was going to school. And I had spent the night before preparing everything, getting it all ready. I had a designated cup holder for a bottle of water, a designated cup holder for a cup of coffee. The, um, the passenger seat was designated as the snack area. And then there's that little gap between the passenger seat and the center console, right? You know what I'm talking about? And in there, I had placed what was probably the most important um, tool for the journey. I had a, a large, huge, in fact, atlas map of all the highways and interstates in the U.S. I didn't need all the highways and interstates in the U.S., but I had them right there. And the night before, my, my father and I had gone through the trip. We had highlighted everywhere I was going to go, where I was going to stop, and, you know, this is going to sound silly, but I love that map. I've, I've lost it. It's since, has, I mean, many trips, it's been torn and had coffee spilled on it and almost caused a couple wrecks, and, you know, it's, it's gone now. I just used the phone. But there was something about a map. I, I really enjoyed that map. There are so many possibilities with maps, right? So many places to go, so many ways to get there. And if you know how to use a map correctly, a map can always help you find where you are. Right? You can look at it and you can find just that bend in the road right next to the river with the forest over there. You can figure out exactly the spot that you're in. Now, I want to suggest something to you this morning, that a calendar is like a map. Maps tell you where you're going, right? They tell you about the things coming up, and that's what a calendar does. And the church calendar especially is a type of map. The church calendar shows us where we are in the work God is doing in the world. And that's especially true, I would say, for the Feast of the Ascension. The Feast of the Ascension, if we can understand it correctly, orients us to the work that God is doing in the world. It shows us where we are in that. But we have to get there, because I, I suspect that the experience of the Ascension for you is not like that. And in fact, I think a lot of us, I know it was true for me, even if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably didn't talk about the Feast of the Ascension much. It sort of registers as a non-event. I, I don't remember this coming up as often as I remember the other stories coming up in Sunday school and that sort of thing. And, it, and if we did talk about it, if we're being honest, a lot of times the ascension can feel kind of like a net loss, right? If, what was so important that Jesus had to go back to the Father? Why, why couldn't he have stayed here? Wouldn't that have made things a little easier if the work of God in the world is good news, how is the ascension, how is Jesus going away good news? That's our question for today. How is the ascension good news? How does the ascension map onto or illuminate the saving work of God in the world? Well, like all good maps, if you're going to draw a map, if you're going to read a map, you have to start with geography. All right, and, and there's a problem we have to get out of the way with how we think about heaven and earth. You see, we tend to think of heaven and earth as separate realities, not, not even like a spatial thing. Like heaven, I mean, I think we all know heaven's not like up here and then the earth is down here. 
But we tend to think of heaven as a completely different reality, like, like Narnia, right? If, if I could just get through the door, if I could just get to heaven, then I could escape this world. I could, I could shuffle off this mortal coil, right? And I could get away from it all and be safe. And I think that because we think of heaven as a sort of safe and separate reality, we tend to think of salvation as an escape, right? It, we think that to be saved means that one day I'm going to make it to heaven. I'm going to get away. That's what it means to be saved. Is, there's something obviously about being good and not doing bad stuff, but ultimately to be, to, save, to be saved is to go to heaven when I die, right? But, you know, the church has never taught that. I don't mean individual churches haven't taught that. What I mean is the, gr the grand history of the church, the things that are taught at all times and all places, the, the mere Christianity teachings of the church, as Lewis put it, have never been about that, about escaping to another dimension where everything is going to be okay. No, Christ is the king of the world. Christ is the life of the world. There's that song we sing in Epiphany, Christ is the light of the world. None of that is about escape. So what is it about? I had a conversation with my daughter the other day about about this kind of theme. We, I mean, we weren't talking about it, but in a way we were ultimately talking about the work of God in the world. And it went something like this. I can't remember the exact words, but I'll give you the gist of it. We were reading a book and, uh, you, know, you know, the way that little kids sometimes, they, they get a little antsy, they don't want to sit down and read, and so they just start like asking questions, kind of derailing a little bit. And she, she pops up and, and said basically, God, or she said, Dad, does, does God save monsters? Does God save monsters? The book we were reading, it had good guys and, and it had these, these evil monsters. And I think she gets that Christ is coming to save people. I think she gets that we need him. But, but there was this question. What she wanted to know was, would God save even the things, would he redeem even the things that feel so horrendous or evil? And so I asked her, I said, Abigail, which is God? Is he a little strong or completely strong? She said, completely strong. And I said, great. And, and which is better, for God to win a little bit of the way or for God to win all the way? She said, all the way. I said, right. So when evil comes in and it tries to take things from God, does God win back some of what evil has taken or all of what evil has taken? And she said, all of it. All of it. That's right. Christ wins everything, not just your soul, not just, you know, I'm going to pick these souls out of, out of creation. All of this is a net loss, but at least I can save them in heaven. No, Christ is saving everything, all of the created world. God wins back all of it. The gospel is not about escaping. It's about the redemption of the cosmos, of every created thing. So what does this have to do with the ascension? Well, let's go back to geography. When scripture talks about heaven, it's not talking about a place. It's not talking about an alternative reality like Narnia. It's talking about the center of all reality, the place from which all reality emanates, the realest of the real. Christ, having redeemed all things, goes to sit in power there at the source of all things. Christ has purchased with his own blood all of the created world. And now at the ascension, he sits down to rule it. 
Now, how do we know that? How do, how do we know that that's what we're supposed to take from what's happening here, this, this little story at the end of Luke, at the beginning of Acts? Well, it, because he told us that's what it meant. He told us that was what was going to happen when in the book of the prophet Daniel. All right, now, now hold with me for a minute. So Daniel's kind of an interesting guy, right? If we sort of we turn in our minds all the way back to the Old Testament, you might, you might remember, you might not, that's okay. Uh, Daniel was a, a nobleman by birth. He lived through three different regimes. Talk about a survivor. He served at least four kings, maybe more. All right, and every time there was a change of power, somehow Daniel was still there in the palace. He spent his whole life in the palace. Daniel knew a lot about power. He saw empires rise and fall. He lived at the pleasure of kings, and at more than one occasion, his life was threatened by the displeasure of a king. And one day, the Lord sent him a vision, a horrifying vision. He said that coming out of the sea, what he saw were these monsters, right? These, these, this terror coming up one after the other, and they fought and they conquered. They, they destroyed the world, vying for power. Daniel was overwhelmed by it. But then the scene changes. Right in the midst of all of that cacophony, the scene changes, and Daniel sees into heaven, right? And he sees God Almighty sitting on a throne, and he sees chairs get set out. God's preparing to give judgment. He's preparing to make sense of the chaos that the monsters have caused, to restore order to the world and Daniel, a courtier from birth, would have understood that this is where things happen. The rule of a kingdom doesn't happen on battlefields or in the market. It happens in the throne room of the king. The enemy might be conquered on the field, but undoing all that the enemy has done, right? The actual ruling has to happen in the throne room. And that's what we see with Daniel. The Almighty takes his seat, and then someone appears, Someone comes into the room. Listen to what Daniel sees. It says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And pay attention here. What, what happens to the Son of Man? It says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Christ ascends to the Father. And our reading from Acts actually makes the connection explicit. Christ was taken away by a cloud. We think about clouds in the Bible, right? Often when, a cloud, when someone's talking about a cloud, they're talking about the glory of the Lord. Where is he going? He's going to the seat of power. He's going to rule. And ruling has to happen, as I said, from the throne. So that's where Jesus is going. You know, we, we had an election this past week. Just sort of bring this home a little bit, right? That um, We elected a mayor. We, we re-elected the mayor. Where does the mayor rule from? He doesn't, he doesn't rule from the parking lot of Kroger, right? He, he rules from City Hall. If you want to rule Georgia, you, you can't be in Macon, right? You've got to go to the capital. If you want to rule the United States, you can't be in South Dakota. That's not the center of things. Christ ascends into heaven not to escape, but to rule, to order his creation in light of his victory. So how is the ascension good news? How does it further the work of God? The ascension is the enthronement of God. 
It's the victory of Christ, far from being a sort of add-on, a kind of non-essential extra at the end of the sort of holiday season. The ascension begins the very culmination of Scripture. Christ rises as the king and then goes to rule. So what does this mean for us? How does the ascension of Christ speak to our often wearying lives? Sometimes I think of it this way. If Christ is on the throne in power, then we, we are in the backwoods. We're out in the country. And out in the country, the monsters still seem frightening. We're waiting for the reality of the kingdom of God to work its way out, out here, right? And the ascension has something to say about that. Think of, think of all the evil we've seen this past week. The ascension has something to say about that. And what does it have to say? I think, I think a place to start is to look at what the New Testament does with the ascension. The, new, the ascension comes up over and over and over again. right? The, entire, the, the letter to the Hebrews is basically a sermon on the ascension. Outside of Hebrews, the, the ascension comes up over two dozen times right? In, in different letters. It's mentioned in two of the Gospels. The writers come back to it again and again and again. Clearly, they think there's something really important here. How did they use it? I just want to point out three ways that they used it. Three ways that the ascension becomes a source for the Christian life. The first is that the ascension, the kingship of Christ, is a source of confidence in the Christian life. It's a source of confidence in the early church. And a way of seeing, it's a way of seeing the world that cuts away the confusion and the fear. And I think we see this most vibrantly in the life of St. Stephen. Now, Stephen, you may remember, um, comes up just a few chapters later in the book of Acts. He's noteworthy for two reasons. He's the first deacon, and he's the first martyr. He's the first person who, who loses his life for the sake of the gospel. And there's this scene right at the end of his life when the mob is surrounding him and they're going to kill him. That's, that's imminently clear from the text. This is the end. And Stephen, facing death, he looks up and what does he see? He says, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. There, in the midst of that danger, what drives Stephen? What gives him confidence Encourage Christ on the throne. Christ ascended into the very center of reality. And there's a way at that moment that it just doesn't matter to Stephen what's going to happen to him. Christ is alive, which means that death didn't, it wasn't, it didn't mean anything ultimately for Christ, right? If Christ comes back to life, then Stephen knows that he's going to come back to life just as Christ is resurrected, that will be resurrected, right? And not, not just like in a spiritual sense, but physically. And so death becomes a non-issue for Stephen. If death didn't prove a barrier to Christ, it won't to him. So Stephen draws confidence from the sight of the ascension. Now, I'm, I'm not St. Stephen, and, and you're not St. Stephen, right? That's not, this isn't the way that I respond to fear, Right? I don't have these grand visions anytime something really terrifying comes up in my life. I, I tend to do the opposite. I often run away from it, from fear. I, I give in to panic or stress. I, I try to find something to sort of to calm me down, right? Because I'm scared. And I, I just wonder how often is that the case? How often does, do we let fear drive us or coerce us 
because we failed to set our hearts on the risen Christ. The ascension is the surety of Christ's victory over the monstrosities of the world. The second thing we gather from the ascension, I think, is related to the first. It's comfort. The ascension is the source of confidence before the evil of the world. And I think also it's a source of comfort in the face of our own frailness. Even those places where the kingdom of God has not yet broken into our own lives. Right? The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and Father Daniel read the whole passage at the beginning, but he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and then he goes on, who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Christ, our brother, is seated on the throne. Christ, who is, who is like us, right? Who took on flesh, who became like us for our salvation, is seated on the throne. If Christ, who calls us brother and friend, has ascended, then we can have peace before God. We can rest in God. Paul reminds Timothy of this. Just as we have died with Christ, we now live with him. That is the life that he has he has given to us. And even if we are faithless, Paul writes, even when we are faithless, Christ remains faithful. Christ's faithfulness to us is greater than our own faithlessness. Now, you know, my, I've mentioned before my background is as a therapist, right? And, and if you're working in therapy, you deal with a lot of fear, right? There, there's, there's a lot of fear out there. Anxiety is, is sort of the common cold of, of therapy, right? It's everywhere. It's in the air we breathe. And frequently, because I'm a Christian and because this often comes up in therapy as a thing people are struggling with, my clients will say something to me like this. They'll say, I'm afraid God's not going to forgive me. I'm afraid God is angry at me. I'm afraid my sin is too much. And I, I think that we know, sort of intellectually, we know what Scripture says about that, but, but a lot of us are still in that place internally, right? And often when a client says that, that when we've gotten down to that level, right, we'll go to the letters of St. John. John the Elder. John the Beloved. John who knew profoundly the love of Christ. And we turn to 1 John chapter 3, where he says this, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he already knows everything. Christ, who is seated in the heavenly places, knows your infirmities and loves you. And his power to absolve you is greater than your hearts to condemn you. So the ascension gives us confidence. It gives us comfort. But there's one other thing that the ascension gives, right? That the ascension becomes the foundation for in the Christian life. Something deeper, something more eternal. You know, evil is going to pass away. And so there's going to be a time when, when confidence and comfort, they aren't needed in that way. But there's one thing that's going to stay, even in, those, in that time, the ascension will still be meaningful as a source of joy. 
Joy was the apostles' response in the gospel's readings. Remember, they went forth in joy. The ascension is a day of feasting, right? Not a day of fasting, not a day of mourning that Christ isn't with us, a day of rejoicing because Christ, the son of man with a human body, has been seated in the holy of holies. It means that creation has been redeemed, that every blade of grass, every tree, every creature, every person has been offered salvation. What does it mean to live in the light of the ascension? It means to live in joy, to rejoice in all the goodness that God has made. And that means art, and it means music, and it means nature, and it means beauty wherever you find it, because every created thing is redeemed. Earlier, I said that sometimes I think of this world as the outskirts of the kingdom of God, the, the boonies, the edge of civilization. The, the, the best that we do in comparison with the holy of holies, in comparison with the throne room of God, is sort of rustic, right? The profound mystery of the ascension of Christ, our brother, ascending into heaven is that creation itself, our rustic existence, is taken up into the heavens. That what is temporary is swallowed into what is eternal. Because Christ in a body of flesh and blood sits next to the Father, we know that our bodies matter. That our lives matter. That matter itself matters. And the response to this is joy. Rejoice in the beauty of all that God has made and now redeemed. So in conclusion, I, I just want to come back to this idea for a moment of the map and the Feast of the Ascension as a map. The Feast of the Ascension orients us. It shows us where we are and where we're going. But the thing about a map is that you have to know how to use it. Christ is seated on the throne. The Ascension happened whether we think about it or not, whether we use it or not. But the Feast is there to mark the occasion to remind us of where we are, to remind us that ultimately at the source of all things is not danger, at the source of all things is not power, at the source of all things is not evil or fear or any other thing that goes bump in the night. At the center, at the source of all things is Christ. Christ seated on the throne, Christ ruling and redeeming all things. Take comfort in that. Rejoice in that. Have confidence in that because Christ has already overcome the world. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.